This is an ABC podcast. As the dust continues to settle and certain things take shape in the aftermath of the federal election, this is The Minefield. Welcome to the show. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Um, this is, uh, I think, quite an important show because we want to discuss something that is, we've discussed on the show before, mm. that uh, I think has been the subject of perhaps the most contemptible political episode in my memory. Mm. Interesting. I'd have to think a bit more about whether there are contenders that would knock it off. But anyway, you get the sense of what I'm saying. It's pretty close. That looks like it will enter a very different political episode, but which is nonetheless still very tricky. Not as straightforward as perhaps quite a few people who are commenting on it would have us believe. I suppose we'll tease out whether I'm right about that. That's part of what the show's about. So all that is to come. And so for that reason, please do stay with us. But we do have a bit of housekeeping to do first, Scott. <laughs> we do. Should I not have mentioned all that before I did the oh, housekeeping? Oh, no. No, no, no. I, um, tell us about the housekeeping. All right. So it's kind of exciting. Back in March this year, people who listen to the show will know that we held out a certain promise. And we are nothing if not people who try to keep our promise and honor our duty. Try to keep it. Try to keep. But, you know, I, I think for the most part we succeed. So one of the things we wanted to do over the course of this year intermittently, is to turn our attention away from pressing moral, political, ethical issues, issues of current affairs, and to fix our attention instead on what I think we are properly called cultural objects or objects of a certain aesthetic value. In other words, these are objects that demand a degree of attention and that reward sustained attention. So we, we wanted to look at a television series, we wanted to look at a film, we wanted to look at a novel, an album, maybe a play, maybe even a painting, who knows. So we started this intermittent series back in March this year, looking at the HBO series Succession, something that I think rewards a great deal of attentive viewing and further discussion afterwards. That was a lot of fun. At the beginning of July, on the 7th, of July, as a matter of fact. We're going to do our next installment in this series. We're not sure what to call it. I like referring it, referring to it as the art of living, while Lead likes referring to it as something like the club where we don't quite discuss books, but we kind of do along with other objects and to see the moral lessons that proceed from it, something like that, Willie. Not a direct quote. No. Anyway, some, something <laughs> like that. Um, but so it's not. It's not quite a book club. No, it's not quite a book club, and it's not yeah. a. It's not moralizing about a piece of art either. Instead, it's trying to subject ourselves, our sense of the world, our sense of the nature of moral growth and development through the particular light that's shed by these great objects of aesthetic value. So what we're doing, we've already looked at HBO's succession, a family drama about a particularly monstrous <laughs> family. Is that a nice word? <laughs> family drama is a stretch. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, we're doing another kind of family drama. It is, to my mind, one of the great novels of the last 300 years. I think it's an irreplaceable novel of moral growth and provocation. I also think it's Jane Austen's greatest novel. And that, of course, is Emma. Pride and Prejudice. 
No, oh. no, 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 Emma. I mean, I like Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. but I love Emma. It was also the last novel that she published during her life. Now, for people who want to participate fully in the conversation that we're going to have... Which, which is why we're saying this now. That's right, say. that's it, right. It's, it's not just a senseless forward promotion. No, it's, no, no, no. So if you want to engage intelligently and uh, sort of fully and actively, then I think there are a few ways for you to do it. The first, of course, is just to read the novel. If you don't have the the gumption, the umph to get through the novel with your weary eyes at the end of the day, there is a, there are some great audio books of it. I would highly recommend Juliet Stevenson's narration of Emma. I think it's a work of art in and of itself. There are also a couple good visual adaptations of Emma. Uh, the best, Waleed well, and I both feel, is the 2009 four-part BBC adaptation that stars Romola Garay as Emma Woodhouse, Johnny Lee Miller as Mr. Knightley, and Michael Gambon, unforgettably as Mr. Woodhouse. There's also a good, though not quite as good, I think, film version. By the way, don't watch the uh, Gwyneth Paltrow version, which is just awful on every conceivable level and makes a mockery of the book. But there is a more recent pretty good cinematic version. That's Autumn DeWilde's 2020 film version of Emma, starring Anya Taylor-Joy as Emma, Bill Nye as Mr. Woodhouse. Um, well, Lee and I both have a bit of a soft spot for Bill Nye. Oh, he's great. And, I got to interview him once, did I tell you? Oh, you didn't. Anyway, oh, Johnny so Flynn, good. Johnny Flynn as a slightly miscast, but still nonetheless pretty good Mr. Nightly. Anyway, that's coming up on the 7th of July. It's going to be a great discussion. It's a wonderful book, and I think you'll be better off for reading it. So this is what I love about the Minefield Not Quite a Book Club is because it's not a book club. We're actually giving you permission to cheat. You it's literally true. can just go and watch the movie. That is perfectly loud. It is perfectly permissible. It is a legitimate and acceptable way of engaging. And you'll still actually be able to understand the discussion without... without yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. But um, I think so. I also would like to impress upon you, if you're listening to this and you want to, you're thinking about listening to that show, it is probably going to be helpful that you have read it or watched it. Mm. Like I, I think this will be a hard one to follow coming to it completely cold. That might have been true for Succession. It, I think it's truer for this. Mm. Would you agree with that? Yep. But it's also just, I mean, Emma's got to be on any list of books that you should read before you die. So take this as an opportunity to read it or watch it intelligently. All right. Shall we get on to more serious <laughs> Much more matters. serious issues, yeah. Today we are talking about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and specifically the First Nations voice to Parliament that is contained within that proposal. Mm. Can That's I just say, it's, it's not just contained, it's the fundamental reform proposed. Yeah. In other words, yeah. without a First Nations voice, nothing else that's required that's demanded from the Uluru Statement from the Heart makes sense or is achievable. Yes. Mm. Now, we've spoken about this on the show before. The, the reason I said the episode that surrounded this, what was it, would have been 2017, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. When Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister, was I th- the reason I thought it was contemptible was not that the government in the end opposed the voice to Parliament. This is a thing that would need to be voted on and therefore it is a proper subject of debate. That I have no problem with. It was that it was dismissed in a perfunctory fashion, mm, having been right. commissioned. That's right, that's right. And having been produced by hundreds of delegates after an enormous and gut-wrenching effort. You know, I, I, I know how hard it can be to get people from a minority or mon- marginalised group to agree on anything. When you imagine multiplying that by hundreds of people, 
and then get him to, to agree on a statement that actually has meaning, that makes a certain call, that has a certain depth to it. Uh, it's frankly miraculous mm. and heroic that this thing was produced. Whether you agree with the suggestion in it or not, it is heroic that it was produced. So having been commissioned and having gotten people in good faith to go through that process, the government then responded, not by dismissing it merely, but by mischaracterising mm. the First Nations voice to Parliament as a third chamber of Parliament repeatedly, and then saying the Australian people would never accept such a third chamber, and so we will not proceed with it. Mm. So to do all that, misrepresent it, and then dismiss it on the basis that the Australian people would reject this thing you've just misrepresented, is just, it's hard to think of an episode in politics that is just worse than that. Yeah. Can I just come um, in quickly there, Walid? Yeah. Because I think there were two other aspects about the process that led to the articulation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart that are really important here. One is the fact that this wasn't just a highfalutin, overly poetic, overly ambitious document that was dreamed up by a group of intellectuals. It was off the back of 13 regional dialogues. In other words, a genuine process of popular deliberation, a genuine sounding out of the voice and the will of the people who were being consulted. A series of dialogues that were themselves commissioned and were themselves mediated by skilled persons, by elders within the indigenous community. Um, it was a model, I think, in many respects of, I mean, you might want to call it deliberative democracy, but by any reasonable measure, it was a deliberative process that satisfies the highest requirements for democratic will formation. Yes, and not without contention, right? They and were, not they without contention. Who, they walked out. That's they, exactly like, right, yes. This was, this was a difficult process. And I would argue, although this gets more into the merits of it than the process, I think there's a real generosity of spirit that's at the heart of it, given what might have been said. Yes, um, that's entirely yeah. right. And, and, anyway. and, that, and that actually gets to the articulation of the Uluru Statement itself. It is written as a document that is grounded in country, that's grounded in tradition and the specific experience of a specific people. But it's also, there's something about the moral appeal of it, Waleed. Not just the spirit of generosity that runs through it, and it really is an astonishing document that holds out the hand of hospitality to gather at a common table and to find a way forward together. But it's also written with a tone, with a tenor, and using language that is universal in its appeal. In other words, it's not just saying that this comes